1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 82, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. It is a lovely Sunday morning in May, and I can't wait to get out in it after I'm done putting this together. First up in the show business department, I want to give a shout out to the show's newest patron, Skylar Hopkins. Thank you so much, Skylar. And as always, I want to thank all of the show's patrons who help keep the show moving forward. So Skylar's contribution came through Patreon, but there are several other ways to help out as well, and I will tell you more about that at the end of the show. Next up, I'm going to squeeze in one more promo from the Orienne Society and the Snake Talk podcast that features Orian's Long Live Turtles campaign that runs from now until World Turtle Day on May 23rd, and that's just in a few days. So have a listen, and we'll talk more on the other side.
2: This is Dr. Chris Jenkins, CEO of the Oriane Society and host of the Snake Talk podcast. We are pleased to announce the launch of our new Hudson Berkshire Turtle Conservation Program. Turtles are one of the most endangered groups of animals on the planet, and the Orient Society aims to reverse this trend by working to conserve blandings, bog, spotted, and wood turtles in one of the most critical regions in North America. The Hudson Berkshire region of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Massachusetts is the only place in the world where all four of these turtles occur, and their populations and habitats are declining. A generous donor is helping us launch the Hudson Berkshire Turtle Conservation Program by matching the funds we raise during our Long Live the Turtles campaign. If you care about turtles or restoring wildlife habitat, please consider supporting our efforts by donating today and having your conservation investment doubled. The campaign runs until World Turtle Day on May 23rd. Learn more about our program and how you can get involved at www.orianne.org.
1: All right. Thank you, Chris Jenkins. If you're a regular listener to this show, you know that I'm a supporter of Oriane and their conservation efforts. And just to throw out a little challenge, a few weeks back, I made a donation to the Hudson Berkshire Turtle Conservation Program, which is mentioned in the promo, and I hope you can, too. So check it out. Now, let's get to this week's episode. I ran into Dr. Andrew Hoffman at the Ohio Park meeting back in April. And Park, as many of you know, is partners in amphibian and reptile conservation. And there are many regional and state working groups within Park Park. Uh, so this is kind of a side note, I guess, but Park is 20 years old this year. So congratulations to all the folks who m- make this Herp Conservation Organization a success. And anyway, I was invited to speak about the Herp Mapper project at the Ohio Park meeting, and I really appreciate the enthusiastic uh, reception at the meeting. And while I'm wandering off topic, uh, I want to also thank uh, Bill Peterman, uh, Megan Seymour, Matt Cross, and Greg Lips for their support of the project. And I also want to thank uh, Richard Phillips for his fabulous introduction to my talk. It was great. Thank you, Richard. Anyway, as I said, I ran into Dr. Hoffman at the meeting and I asked him to come on the show. So I've known Andrew for many years and he's been involved in some interesting projects that I was eager to hear about. So, uh, But please note, uh, we ran into some technical issues while recording, which resulted in a few garbled words and sentences in a few spots, such as the phrase, hold it like a hamburger. You'll see. And uh, two recording sessions that had to be stitched together. And uh, I also spent a half day fixing some recorded tracks that were out of sync, and that is a mess, folks. Uh, So I've been kind of spoiled with a long run of good recording sessions over the Internet, but it was not this day. But I think it all came together okay. Hi there, everyone. Today I am talking to Dr. Andrew Hoffman. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here.
1: So Andrew, uh, you are, um, you and I have known each other for a long time. I think I have it down maybe 15 years that we've, uh, been acquainted.
0: Your memory's probably better than mine, but yeah, it's been a long, it's been a while. I think we probably met back at snake road. I'm guessing.
1: I think I, I think we met at a, um, a Indiana Herp Society meeting, oh. uh, perhaps when you were in high school. Huh?
0: Well, that's probably even earlier than I would have thought. Yeah, I think so.
1: Cool. Uh, and, and, uh, I think, uh, you and Todd Pearson, I met you yep. both at the same meeting and, uh, <laughs> so, and neither one of you I think could drive at that point. I think you, your, your parents were driving you to meetings and stuff. So, so you've come a long way.
0: It's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's fun to see where everybody's gone since, uh, yeah, I think a number of us met around that same time and we've all kind of Going on to continue our passion in this field in different ways.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so now, um, 15 years or so later, you are, you are now a postdoctoral researcher at the Ohio state university. Right. And for just uh, another
0: less than a month now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll talk about that too, but you're also, you're at the school of environment and natural resources. Right. And tell us uh, a little bit about what you're doing there in this, in your current
0: capacity. Sure. So I am finishing up a postdoctoral appointment working with massasaugas in Ohio. And really the the biggest thing that we're focused on with this project and, and the reason I was brought on is to sort of refine this adrift or adrift technique for detecting snakes. I mean, it can detect a lot of stuff, but uh, the, the goal here was to try to refine a new technique to help better detect massasaugas, which of course are this small kind of uh, prairie, swamp, uh, bog, fin, dwelling rattlesnake that's now federally threatened. And there's uh, a lot of interest in in getting really good techniques to efficiently locate them where they occur so we can protect them. And so this is a modified drift fence and modified camera system, kind of putting those two together to try to passively detect them instead of having to expend a lot of energy to go out and do surveys.
1: I think uh, when I was at the uh, Ohio Park meeting last month— Uh Uh, Time flies. Uh, I think there was some talk about this with the uh, instead of you know you you capture a snake in a drift fence, in a bucket trap or something. and A drift fence has a a, either a some kind of pen or bucket trap to catch animals, and then you take data and release them. You don't necessarily need to do all that. And then with a venomous snake, there's the issue of having to handle the snake. You know, there's all the safety protocols. But this is just simply. Getting the animal to pass by a camera.
0: Correct. Yeah, I think Greg Lips did a talk at that meeting uh, on a drift. And it was basically, you know, we work with Greg quite a bit and it was a lot of this same work. Uh, but yeah, I mean, basically, you take a drift fence which has these pitfall traps or some sort of trap at the end of the fence. And instead of the bucket being sunk into the ground to capture and trap the animal, you put the bucket above the ground, flip it on its end stick a camera up inside the bucket so that, and then cut holes so animals can pass through it freely. And basically you just have to then make sure your camera is programmed to be able to operate at that kind of close range. And you've got everything set up so that it's going to take good photographs at such close range and at such small creatures. And you can just uh, leave it out there as long as the batteries last and it's, it's detecting things for you. Great for snakes, outstandingly good for small mammals um, functionally good apparently for birds and a lot of insects. Uh, this I think is a technique that could really revolutionize how we sample for small, especially vertebrate animals.
1: Interesting. So is it a special, I'm, I'm, I have the picture in my head of an upside down bucket
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. along,
1: along a drift fence. And then so the animal, uh, goes into the openings as animals do, Mm-hmm. Uh, for refuge or looking for food or whatever. But then do you have a special camera mounted on the top? Is it a special kind of camera you use to capture images of, of the
0: rattlesnakes? So we used pretty high-end reconnics cameras that had been factory set to be able to you know detect and focus on things that close. But I know that others have looked at slightly less expensive cameras and even just getting – like a, a lens from a store, you know, like a a, um, like a glasses lens or something from a store and putting it in front of the camera lens to focus it in. So I think there's probably cheaper ways you can do it than getting these factory set uh, expensive cameras. But um, I, that'll be the interesting thing to see where this goes. I think there's a lot of cameras that could work to do this, but it is basically a trail cam or a game cam. Okay.
1: And so is it is it motion triggered to take pictures?
0: Yeah. And I mean, theoretically, you could set it also to be, you know, uh, have, uh, what do they call it, where it takes at some interval. But the the motion triggering is, is really what you want if you're trying to detect everything that goes through and things aren't passing through real frequently. So yeah, it's motion detected. Okay.
1: And uh, then I'm thinking, well, you better, that bucket needs to be fastened in some way. I mean, right. using stakes or straps or something to hold it so that the wind doesn't blow it away or... Uh, A cow comes along and kicks it or a deer (laughs) upends it or something.
0: So, yeah, the, basically we attach it to the fence and the fence is staked in the ground and that typically keeps it pretty well in place. And we just use zip ties to attach it to the fence, Um, zip ties and what were the other things we used? Sort of twisty wires basically to keep everything on the fence and attached to the fence but yeah, I mean, that worked pretty well. A, a really devoted deer will be able to dislodge it and move it if it wants to. And you might wonder why a deer would purposefully want to. And I would have too, until we kind of came up against the rut and bucks that were looking to sort of destroy things with their antlers. And we had some interesting photos of antlers coming in through the camera before the camera was then flipped and, and pulled from the fence and thrown a few feet away where we found it when we picked everything up. Wow. Okay. yeah uh, not you know, we had a lot of these fences out, and I think we had that happen twice. so it's it's pretty rare that these things get dislodged and messed with. We did have uh, one camera stolen too, but that was out of about eighty six cameras at forty three fences. so this was on a public property. so they, they a lot less theft and vandalism than we thought, and we had enough people ask us what these were and what we were doing that they weren't unknown to the folks that were visiting this property.
1: okay, well, you know most people are are. Are interested? They want to know. There's only. There's always one knucklehead in a bunch, but
0: uh, right. uh, for the most part, people are just curious. And Yeah, and the, well, the nice thing was the one camera that they did take. They they left the camera at the other end of the fence, and they had the they kind of propped the lid of everything up against it and left it very neat for us. You know, nothing was broken or ripped up. The camera was just gone, so they, they oh. were pretty neat about it, at least. Okay, all right.
1: So you're you're detecting uh, massasagas. Right. And uh, other critters as well.
0: Lots of other critters. Yeah. I mean, uh, small mammals, this is is great at detecting mustelids, weasels, which I've I've heard from others are notoriously hard to come up with good survey methods to detect and study. And they love these things. And we've got great images of minks playing in the buckets, bringing their friends in, bringing their food in, uh, rolling around and looking up at the camera. I mean, they, they seem to become little <laughs> hangout spots for them. And I mean a lot of other interesting activity. You get multiple snakes in there sometimes. I think we had a couple images of multiple massasaugas in a bucket. Um, so yeah, you you capture a lot more than you'd think you'd get in a bucket that's meant to just have them passing through. But for for some of these groups, uh, snakes that move a lot, mustelids, small mammals, uh, these are great methods that probably rival a lot of traditional methods, if not surpass them, and how effective they are.
1: Okay. Very cool. Uh, I'm glad though we had a chance to talk about this because, uh, I was very excited to hear, um, uh, uh, Greg's talk a- at the, at the Ohio park meeting when he mentioned these cameras and I thought, well, sure. that's, really nifty because you don't necessarily need to handle the animal. Uh, no. you are just looking for movement data and occurrence data. And, uh, you can extrapolate a lot, a lot of things from that without having to put, uh, the animal in some sort of stressful situation, or yourselves in some sort of, um, you know, not terribly deadly situation, obviously, but it's, you know, there's some risk involved and it requires protocol and all of that.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, handling and, and messing with snakes and wild animals generally is not good for them. You know, they don't enjoy it. They'd rather not have it happening. And when you're handling and messing with venomous snakes, that's a hassle. Uh, having done it for the number of years before that, it's, yeah, it's much easier to not have to do that than to have to do it.
1: I also wonder, too, about the effect, you know, you I mean, bucket traps are very effective for for. Uh, you know, oh, when you use them with a the drift fence. You can get a pretty good idea of what's there and what's moving through. But I often wonder about the, you know, the bucket trap experience for a vole or a snake uh, and does it affect their, uh, their future activity? And uh, what they do and where they go um, is falling in a hole. If you well, you or I fell in a hole and we couldn't get out for a day. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of a stressful situation. I can't imagine that there's zero stress involved for the animal to be stuck in a, the bottom of a bucket and maybe stuck in the bottom of a bucket with some other critters that you don't want to be with.
0: Well, and, and drift fences notoriously, at least for those who work with them a lot, know, know this they kill a lot of things. Uh, and you can check it as often as you'd like, but you really have to get a pretty unrealistic frequency of checks to prevent all mortality. You get something like a shrew trapped in the falls in the pit, and it's dead within a few hours and starves so fast. Uh, you get something like an amphibian in a hot day, and you can put sponges and you can keep water in the bucket. But if, if it dries out, if it gets if something else happens, you know, a snake gets in there, it gets an easy meal. So it's, A lot of things can die in the fences. If you're not checking them daily at the right time, even more can die. And uh, there's just some animals that can get in there, especially small mammals, especially shrews that die really quickly. So I think there's there's always stress involved with handling and trapping animals. But with drift fences, there's going to be some amount of bycatch and mortality that's almost unavoidable. So
1: all we had to do is float the bucket upside down.
0: Yeah, and, and put a really expensive sort of modern camera in there and tune it to take pictures at the right place. I think technology sort of finally caught up with making this a, a viable thing. But, yeah, it, it does seem like we were pretty close to this really nice technique for a long time. Physically, at least, we just maybe didn't have the technology to do it.
1: Tell me about Massasaugas in Ohio. Are they uh, – they're pretty pretty much in trouble. I'm, they're pretty much in trouble everywhere. But uh, uh, sure. do you have many populations of them left?
0: Yeah, well, I'll I'll tell you what I've been telling a lot of people, which isn't a real rosy statement, but it's uh, work with massasaugas, and that you don't have a lot of rosy statements. I've told people that you know, I worked with timber rattlesnakes for about six years, and there were a lot of stress about trying to you know, work to conserve them. And now, after working with massasaugas, I feel feel pretty good about timber rattlesnakes. I think they're they're going to be all right <laughs> yeah. because I've seen how how bad it can be. And massasaugas are really bad off. There, there's a number of populations in Ohio. There's only one that's doing very real well. Um, there's probably a handful that are doing, uh, you know, th- that are I think savable and conservable. And there's a lot of efforts, especially in northern northeast Ohio, to do that. Uh, and some some newer efforts in parts of central Ohio. But they're really, I mean, uh, if you look at the I believe 2016 status assessment for the species, they have a kind of pr- projections on, on different trends and different levels of decline that you might see and how many populations might be left, I think in uh, five or 10 years and then 20 years and then 50 years, something like that. And we're, we're pretty well on track for the declines that they predicted. I mean, you can look at some of the maps where they have populations that were noted as being present in 2016 and a number of them are not present or are, are at the verge of extirpation now. So, I mean, this is a species that is... Not just declining in terms of there's fewer individuals at sites, but we're we're losing populations every year, every few years. I mean, uh, the last few decades have been have been particularly rough.
1: Yeah, and I, there's so many uh, factors to that too. Uh, it's uh, not just loss of habitat, and obviously, Massasaugas have some specialized habitat needs. Um, mm-hmm. including some wetlands and, uh, drier meadow situations. So they, they have a, they use a mixture of different, um, habitats. So you've got to preserve those, but you always also have to deal with climate change. And, um, the, the fact that the, I mean, it's not just fragmentation of habitat, but it's like, oh, here, well, here's, here's, uh, here's 10 acres for Massasauga. Yeah. You know, and 10 acres is not much, you know, that
0: kind of thing. Right. And it's funny because the, the issue with timber rattlesnakes and massasaugas, I, I would say, is opposite in some ways. And I've always told people that if you kind of flipped the ecology of the two species, then timber rattlesnakes would be doing, uh, basically would, would be extinct and massasaugas would be doing pretty well. Because massasaugas are a species that had the misfortune of occupying good farmland, areas that would make good farmland. They They like wet, sort of flat. Soil uh, historically thins and wetlands, and once we figured out how to really effectively drain those, that was kind of the the, the doom uh, for that snake. Timber rattlesnakes, on the other hand, are forest species by and large. It lives in really hilly, often poor, soiled areas that don't make good farmland. And their only problem is that they're so big; they need a lot of space. They, they have big home ranges, so you you really have to get a huge. And they're also they because they're so big, they move a lot. They cross roads a lot, so even areas that seem like there's a lot of wild areas, if there's enough roads, you just get this sort of tick of mortality that becomes a little higher than they can handle over time. But massasaugas, uh, they're smaller. And and some people have argued that they may be adapted pretty well for living in localized patches of habitat. They might have, you know, fins and wetlands along riverways and that kind of thing might have historically been semi-isolated, maybe even kind of metapopulation type patch dynamics. So they're not they're not like timber rattlesnakes where they're really adapted to live on a big landscape, but the degree of fragmentation and habitat loss that has happened is is undoubtedly beyond what they're well adapted to deal with. So my whole, if the two were flipped thing, you'd have uh, the small snake that needed sort of uh, big spaces and the big snake that could deal pretty well in the small spaces. But um, I, guess the, I guess it's good that it is the way that things are. So we still have both species, but I, I would say that because there are such big expanses of forested areas in the Appalachians and in parts of southern Indiana, southern Ohio, uh, southern Illinois, the timbers are, are probably okay long term. But massasaugas are a species that are at real risk of extinction. Um, and there are certainly areas that are probably pretty stable going forward. But if you look at that status assessment, it gets you down to a really small number of populations, you know, 50 years out that have a high probability of still sticking around. And that's if no more landscape change and loss happens so they're they're struggling
1: yeah and I, I it's bad enough if we just consider the typical problems habitat fragmentation and so on and so forth but we now we're throwing in uh climate change and the uh, events that come with climate change uh lack of rain change in rainfall patterns change in uh temperatures uh uh, uh in terms of first frost and last frost and things like that, all these things have changed and it's just another source of pressure on an animal that already has many, many sources of pressure.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, if if you have a landscape that has a species and you have a rough year or a disease or some other kind of stochastic event happens, you know, you, you lose some, but they can kind of get by by repopulating the areas that were hit the hardest. If you have one, 30 acre nature preserve with the species and you get a weird year there you know um, we had an instance where that seems to seems to be a uh, in the past year in ohio that a beaver damming an area flooded a lot of the nature preserve and probably was helped contribute to walking uh, mostly wiping out or nearly wiping out a population of assasauga so i mean it doesn't take much of of uh, a minor stochastic event to knock out something that's on a 20 acre preserve
1: i hate stochastic events although i really like the term <laughs>
0: It's a good term, but, yeah in, yeah, in our field, it's not often a good thing.
1: No, and it's just no telling. It's one of those things where I, I always think about, um, and this takes me back to uh, uh, Indiana, mm-hmm. uh, back in the day. Uh, I remember going uh, early, I think late February, we're out looking for doing the salamander thing, as one does. And yep. we we had we came across a pond that was uh, loaded with dead Jefferson salamanders. They were mm-hmm. all frozen and they've been yeah. early breeders. They, they're risk takers. They breed early. They went to the ponds to breed. And then there was a, an event, the pond froze, uh, uh apparently quickly and, uh, severely enough. It just killed a bunch of these off. And, you know, looking at it, it's like, Whoa, that's, that's horrible. And it was, I mean, it's mm-hmm. like one of those things like, Oh man, I, you just don't want to see that. But yeah. in terms of the, Animal called Jefferson salamander. In totality, it's only one event. Um, mm-hmm. the The species will bounce back from uh, a a thing like that happening in one area, mm-hmm. because it has there are, there are enough animals in, in occupying uh, enough territory that they can overcome that. But the right. when you're down to just a few, uh, it really makes it difficult for those animals to to overcome. Those kinds of events, especially, you know, a salamander, you know, goes out and lays, I don't know how many eggs, let's say 50 eggs. There's not as too many. Let's say 24 <laughs> eggs. How <laughs> many more? Sure. Reasonable. 24 eggs and uh, the next year, m- maybe a lot of those survive, but, you know, that's not the way it works with things like turtles or, or Massasaugas, you know, they don't have these big litters that, uh, and big numbers that can, you know, quickly come back and you know and scatter young youngsters across the landscape. It just takes forever to, to recover.
0: It does, but you know the surprising thing and this is something I had to resituate because timber rattlesnakes are sort of famously long-lived, slow reproducing. Uh, I mean they can live into their 40s and 50s, it seems with what folks are finding in New York. and they you know, can can take many years to get to sexual maturity and they maybe sometimes just have a few young. Uh, but those young have pretty high survivorship and, and there's some at least very short parental care early on and probably some, uh, I, I guess I'm going to be a little, uh, say say that it, there's some learning that happens between the young and the adult. I don't know how purposeful it is, but they're following scent trails back to dens. So there's this sort of investment in these few young that they have. But massasaugas are definitely not, uh, not quite that far that way in terms of being a a long-lived species that's really slow in in their ecology and their life cycle. They reproduce at a much shorter, uh, younger age. They don't live as long. They have more young. Um, So all of those things are helpful, and it's more typical of what you'd see with a species that lives in these really disturbed environments that might have been burned and grazed, you know, open early successional habitats. But it's, it's not enough. And as you pointed out, it's not quite like an insect or an amphibian that has hundreds or dozens and dozens of young annually or biannually. And can, you know, if they have a bad year, they bounce right back. This is a species that that can be whittled away pretty quickly if you have mortality that ticks up, or if you have a stochastic event, uh, they're not gonna bounce back as easily as as an amphibian. And I think critically, they're not as widespread. You know, Jefferson salamanders, even if you do have one property that's hit really hard by something, maybe most of the adults die in some bad winter event maybe that was you know a pond that wasn't deep enough and that was always a risky pond and then the pond across the street they they're able to get in from that but massasauga's just no longer have that kind of um, landscape dynamics where there's any good populations that can refuel them when they when certain ones blink out at the periphery of what they where they can exist uh, and in fact it's probably hard to know which of the populations that are left would have been the i I don't want to use metapopulation terms too much because i know that they're there's certain criteria to say something is operating within this kind of meta-population framework, but if, if we're to use some of these terms, uh, you know, we don't know whether some of these populations left might have been kind of sink populations that only existed because there were uh, better habitats surrounding them to continually contribute more adults and, and have better reproductive, re- reproductive success in the small areas where they still exist. Uh, which ones are the good ones and which ones are the ones we're left with that maybe were already marginal habitat that just happened to be what we preserved. Hmm. Yeah.
1: as you know we we take the good we take the good land as you know the the stuff that's uh, the best land that we can and then there's the they're hanging on on the fringes of the the the, the land that maybe got overlooked or wasn't uh,
0: immediately developed. Right. I mean we've we have really biased against preservation of flat fertile areas. Uh, I don't know about throughout the world, but certainly throughout Eastern North America, where I'm familiar with, I mean, you want to see what a sort of floodplain or, or flat, fertile ecosystem would have looked like historically, you know, good luck finding uh, a remnant habitat that shows you what that looked like. There's some areas where you, you basically have no riparian flat habitat left. It's all farmed. And so you have yep. to just sort of guess what would have been there historically.
1: Yeah, and that's where, you know, where I live here in Champaign, it is it is that way. East Central Illinois, uh, uh, they drained the prairies. You know, they dug ditches and uh, put in drain tiles and they just basically, it used to be kind of a wet, a mixed, a dry and wet prairie around where I live. And uh, we had massasaugas and other creatures like that that uh, just no longer exist in our county. Um, whoops, I think I lost you. Oh, okay. We are back. We had a little bit of a disconnect there. Um, so we were talking about the Massasaugas and the, the uh, disappearance of the wetlands and things like that. And uh, uh, I, I guess um, they're protected in, in Ohio, uh, and uh, the state is on board with at least trying to protect the populations that you have.
0: Yes. Uh, there's there's a lot of exciting habitat restoration and conservation work going on in Ohio, for massasaugas a lot of people working on this, and it really, I, I think everywhere they occur in the state, there's some pretty dedicated effort to try to restore the populations. And I think seeing some of these populations blink out recently or nearly bl- blink out has really been a been a motivator. And it's it's nice to see Ohio kind of, I would say, at the forefront of doing a lot of interesting work and, and you know testing out these ADRIFT arrays for detection, but also doing a lot of habitat restoration work, which I've enjoyed getting to be a part of too.
1: Okay. So you're involved with some of that as well. And as far as that yeah. goes, that's that's um, when you're talking about habitat re- restoration for massasaugas, what goes into that?
0: Killing trees mostly. Uh, they're an early successional species that likes herbaceous open habitat. And, you know, it's hard to know exactly what would have maintained that historically. It probably depends on location. And as water tables change, as, as climate changes then the things that may have originally kept some of this habitat open are also going to change but a lot of it you know we've we've disturbed and altered the landscape to such a such an extent that whatever was naturally uh, a mechanism to keep habitat open to keep it in this early not so dominated by woody plant state is gone now so i mean really a lot of it is just trying to push back this succession natural succession often of native shrubs and trees sometimes of invasive shrubs or trees but Yeah, just trying to open things up uh, to a large extent. And uh, I know there's also folks working to kind of look at connecting different habitats and what kind of land conservation, working with private landowners and that sort of thing to try to get a little bit of habitat connectivity where there isn't any currently, but certainly was some historically.
1: Yeah, we see a lot of that work done with other species like, I think, Blanding's turtles and uh, Mm -hmm. other critters that might require different habitats at different times of the year.
0: Right, right.
1: So I want to take this in a little different direction. You, you've talked about timber rattlesnakes uh, a little bit. and uh, You've done some work with them. Can you talk about what what exactly were you doing with timbers?
0: Sure. So I, I actually, well, my first bit of work with timbers was years ago. I'm trying to think how many years ago now. It was probably 2000, 2008 maybe. Uh, I was a college student and it was a summer internship where I got to do radio telemetry with timber rattlesnakes in Indiana for the hardwood ecosystem experiment, which was kind of a collaborative er effort between Purdue University and and Indiana DNR, I think some other entities. But that was my first real experience doing this kind of research with venomous snakes. And we would put transmitters inside these rattlesnakes and track them around the landscape and uh, daily and, and kind of see where they went and record habitat metrics and then try to uh, I wasn't involved in that part of that project, but you know, folks would then try to assess, analyze the data to see any differences between the kind of habitat they did use versus where we didn't find the rattlesnakes. So that that I think was part of the reason that I, that this opportunity was open to me to come onto this PhD project with uh, in Bill Peterman's lab was because I'd had some experience years ago doing this same kind of work, and that was what folks wanted done in Ohio. They wanted some sense of of how the rattlesnakes were using the landscape especially as it pertained to management so i think there was some interest in better understanding the interplay between sort of timber harvesting uh and prescribed fire and how that affected the landscape and how that affected the snakes potentially so we pretty much just set off to do a a telemetry project for five or six years the length of a phd with timber rattlesnakes at a site in Southern Ohio where there has been a lot of varied management, both in timber harvesting and in prescribed fire, Um, a a lot of studying done at this site in terms of the effect of these different management techniques on the landscape. So it's a pretty great opportunity to see then how that folds in with timber rattlesnake movement and habitat use. Uh, Unfortunately, and, and a little bit frustratingly, but totally understandable given how how sort of conditional management is on on what happens on a year to year basis, just even in in weather conditions. We didn't have any burns that were done during the time that we were studying the snakes and there wasn't any, uh, at least not any large scale timber harvesting going on. So our study ended up being more of a kind of historical retrospective on on how, uh, what a landscape looks like after X number of years since they harvested that section or since they burned that area and how that seems to affect the way timber rattlesnakes use different patches of habitat on the landscape. So we tracked 43 snakes, uh, at least that many is what we tracked for long enough to gather data on. And uh, some of them we had, I think, four or five years, we had at least a few snakes that we tracked for that long. And so this gave us a multi-year perspective on multiple individuals and what they were doing, what their home ranges looked like, how they overlapped recently clear-cut areas, how they overlapped sort of selectively cut areas how they overlap frequently burned sites. And we also looked at their dens. Um, we spent some time trying to better understand the timing of their ingress and egress. That is sort of the return to dens in the fall and they're leaving the dens in the spring, how that might overlap spring and fall burn seasons. So we tried to kind of look at it from every angle we could to better understand the interplay of forest management with uh, how these timber rattlesnakes were using the landscape.
1: Okay. So very similar to the work you were doing in Indiana, you're just doing it at a higher level.
0: Yeah. And I do not even know that I'd say higher level. I guess it was higher level in that I was the one sort of in charge of all the field stuff, which before I was just the one that got handed the equipment and close to all the snakes, which is uh, certainly a lot of work in itself. But uh, yeah, I think I was involved in more of the behind the scenes and, and analytical stuff. And of course, because this was my PhD project, I sort of saw it from beginning to end through, which was a lot of fun. So, uh, I mean, the, the Indiana project was also on a pretty big time scale and had a, a big sample size. So I would say they were similar in terms of the scale uh, of both. And uh, I both asked slightly different questions, but I think there's a lot of complementary results that came out of our study and the one that was done in Indiana.
1: Well, I'm, fr- I'm very familiar with the Indiana study because I uh, had the opportunity to uh, sort of job shadow our buddy, Greg Stevens, when he was sure tracking rattlesnakes, this would have been 2007, I believe. And that was the year
0: I was tracking box turtles. I remember him out tracking rattlesnakes while I was tracking box turtles.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In the same, in the same area. And, mm-hmm. um, it was amazing to, um, how much I learned about timber rattlesnakes in a very short period of time. Um, yeah. <laughs>
0: just spending every day with animal will do that. Or spending spending time just finding them wherever they are. Yeah,
1: it, that was the thing. Is that you know up to that time, I would usually find timber rattlesnakes when they were going somewhere,
2: mm-hmm. going
1: to the den, coming from the den, something like that, crossing a road or whatever. Here was a chance just to see them in the middle of a snapshot, a snapshot in time. Here's the snake today, mm-hmm. and so it was just really interesting. And so so many of the snakes were you know, in ambush position at the base of some sort of uh, nut producing tree, (laughs) a hickory or something like that. It was just amazing Mm -hmm. to find these bright yellow four foot plus monsters (laughs) coiled up at the base of trees. And, and, um, you know, it really gave me a, a better idea of what these animals were like and how they really were. and, And the fact that it was I mean the the long and short of it is that for the next couple of years I found more timber rattlesnakes <laughs> elsewhere because I sort of learned a lot about where they hang out and what they look like when they're you know buried under leaves with their little head sticking out on on a log you know that kind right. of thing so it was very instructional for me but it, it got it got me to appreciate them as uh I had not previously appreciated them in terms of you know we have basically i think maybe an what we would call an apex predator there's not much mm-hmm. uh th- th- there's not much that picks on a 4 foot timber no mostly <laughs> mostly
0: just one one thing that does and that's hawks but not much yeah. else but yeah they get that
1: big and they're they're kind of the king of the forest and uh mm-hmm. they eat they eat squirrels they, they you know they're not just you no know, obviously they're they're slurping down smaller rodents but these things reach a size where a squirrel is a great meal and uh yeah um, I just, uh, they're just one of my favorite rattlesnakes because of that. I think that opportunity.
0: Me too. Uh, spending so much time with an animal, you get really familiar with their habits. You, I mean, you start to see the individual sort of trends emerge of this, this snake likes one, one male. We followed a lot. Why does he always go to these clear cuts? We'd always be frustrated with this one male. and, And we did name our snakes. And part of that was for outreach purposes. Uh, but part of it is I've also just never found the Arguments against naming study animals particularly convincing, at least with herps, as to why it's important not to do that. But uh, we had a snake called Mr. Darcy, and he was notorious for (laughs) going in and out of clear cuts all summer long. And and if you've ever walked into a clear cut in June or July, uh, well, and by clear cut, I mean a a slope or a part of the forest that has been even-aged harvest, meaning they took all the trees, all the mature trees at once, uh, so there was no standing trees left. Uh, a few years later it's it's a overgrown field with lots of i mean it doesn't take long for it to start regenerating going through the natural process of succession and so it's it's not non habitat for more than you know a few weeks and then it starts being a different kind of habitat but i'd say that the 10 years after you do one of those cuts it's a pretty miserable place to walk through because you have a lot of thorny shrubs coming up you have a lot of young trees that are very close together and we had a few snakes that just loved these things. They'd get in these clear cuts. They'd spend a lot of their summer in them. And we'd have to track them down steep slopes, you know, trying to hold on to only things to hold on to are thorny. And you can't see where you're going or where <laughs> you're stepping. And there's still hot sun somehow reaching you. Uh, but it it is an interesting perspective. You get into the life of an animal to follow it around so much.
1: I, I'm, I'm semi-familiar with Mr. Darcy because I think um, uh, my friend Sky... Stevens was involved with that project for a while. I think maybe she named that snake. She
0: did name him. She found him and named him. I was actually in a class while she was uh, attempting to extract him for the first time uh, for transmitter implantation from underneath a big boulder. So I was texting back and forth, you know, kind of under the desk where I, as a graduate student, was in some sort of class and was trying to text, you're not supposed to do that class, but I was was trying to deal with a, a, a technician, you know working in the field with the, with a venomous snake and, you know, sky was great. So I wasn't particularly worried about anything, but I was just trying to keep up with what was happening in the field. And, uh, that was, that was a fun capture story she had there.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think it was, a she was really into Jane Austen at the, at that time. So, so some of the snakes yes. got uh, characters from Jane Austen novels, hence
0: Mr. Darson. Yeah. I was trying to think, I was trying to think what other, we had a number of literary names that came from her, <laughs> Uh, and a lot of those were, were pretty good survivors. They, they were the ones we had for, you know, four or five years that we tracked and were doing pretty well.
1: And in, in terms of particular snakes that for some reason use uh, what would you call unexpected habitat choices, did it uh, male and female or was there a gender um, uh, preference for, for, you know, open and exposed areas or did it matter?
0: Yeah. Um, I, I think statistically, nothing came out or stuck out there. You sort of there's there's what you've analyzed and looked at the actual numbers on, and then there's what you think was going on. And so you know we didn't have anything that we statistically looked at that that could have spoken to that. But in terms of what I remember, I would say the only thing that and this is something that we worked into some of our analyses, but the only thing that really pops out is gravid females do pretty unique things in terms of, and this is almost any, uh, live bearing snake that's been studied especially all these vipers that the gravid females are usually analyzed as a totally separate you know, you've got males you have females and you've got gravid females they do su- such different things because mm-hmm. they are trying to keep their body temperature so elevated and so for these rattlesnakes i think as with many other studies they they sought out really sunny and exposed areas and oftentimes this was on ridge tops. so they were really far from water really far from ravine bottoms Uh, I think in a lot of cases, this was more similar to what you would consider the classic place to look for timber rattlesnakes, kind of high, dry, rocky, or lots of deadfall uh, ridges with little openings and exposure and sedge and greenbriar. And I think part of the reason we may associate that with a good kind of rattlesnake habitat is because the gravid females are one of the only times at which these snakes are really reliably easy to find in terms of you know exactly the kind of habitat they look for when they're in that state. And it's uh, hollow logs that have sun exposure and, and heat, and uh, it's it's fairly easy once you hone in on what that habitat looks like to find a gravid female. And there's also a seasonality to it. You get later in the summer, you're getting towards when they're really kind of selecting the log or the rock outcrop they're likely going to give birth in. And so uh, I think. I don't know if that's unusual habitat or not. I would say it it definitely comes out as being different than what most rattlesnakes are using in that population most of the time, even though it's more typical to what we think of as rattlesnake habitat. Um, the I would say the other side of unusual, and it's a totally other end of the spectrum, would be snakes in fern-covered shaded ravines and next to rivers and that kind of thing. And that's why I think a lot of people don't associate that here in the Midwest and maybe the Appalachians with um, timber rattlesnakes. But it's it's where we saw them often i would say i have a lot of memories of looking for our big males in these really just dense uh vegetated lush river bottoms and they would hang out down there and they'd they'd get meals down there they'd shed down there and and they were a real pain to have to work with in these thick sort of viney shrubby areas along riverbanks that were really steep but that was uh that was kind of unusual but It I think real quickly you find out that this is an animal that moves so much that they can use most of the landscape and they do just for different things and uh, that was the focus of one of the papers that we published which is basically that you know habitat selection with this species is really dependent on what they're doing and what they're looking for because as a whole they use such varied areas and they use such a large area of the landscape that it's hard to to generalize it unless you have really stark you know forests and and city. I mean, you know they're not going to use areas there, but uh, if you're in a largely forested natural landscape, they use a lot of it. But when you split it up by their foraging here and they're shedding their skin here, and here's a female that's gravid, then you start to see differences in, in how exposed it is and how warm it is and in the kind of slope they're selecting, how close to the river bottom they are. But you really have to split up the almost, I would say, you really have to look at the intention or, or guess at the intention of why they're there to figure out uh, differences in, in habitat preferences.
1: I see, and and I know in, in Indiana, for example, the populations that we were talking about uh, that you tracked as an an undergrad and a, I had a chance to be involved with uh, they they really didn't hibernate in what we call the classic uh, timber rattlesnake hibernaculum. There weren't hibernac- they weren't hibernating in rocky uh, you know a rocky den somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. a, a limestone bluff or you know top of a rocky hillside that that's habitat just didn't exist in indiana so they're you know they have different uh ways of you know hibernating in logs and they're using root systems of old trees and things like that and uh do you uh is that kind of the same
0: thing in ohio or is it sort of a mixed bag so it depends on where you are In our study site i would say the topography, the habitat, and the rattlesnake behavior was almost identical to that southern Indiana population. Very, very similar. Uh, there were den sites that we had that I thought, oh, this is exactly what I remember seeing rattlesnakes at in early spring, you know, 10 years ago in Indiana. Um, but there were some areas that were rockier. I mean, we had, a, I had two or three dens maybe where we had some rock exposure and rattlesnakes coming and going from it. However, there were not big. Uh, concentrations of snakes. I mean, we had, we tracked 43 snakes and I think we had 20 den sites that we identified and we had two or three animals. I can't remember if it was, uh, I think they were all males, three, I believe that actually did switch dens. Uh, You know, they were using one den when we first started tracking them. And then uh, a year or two after we started tracking them, they switched to a different one. And so it, it didn't seem like you had this high site, well, I mean, still high site fidelity, but certainly not to the extent that you hear about in the Northeast in the big kind of talus slope hillsides up in the mountains it's it's a different situation and i i don't remember if there if there's a paper that talks a little bit about dinning across the range of timber rattlesnakes and how it varies and i think that they made it either they did this or this was a, a logical jump i had from reading the paper but basically that you know here in in sort of the midwest you have almost an intermediary trend from the big dens of the northeast where where climate is really a big factor in surviving the winter and you have to have just the most perfect place, perfect exposure to not die in the winter time. And so all the snakes flock to the same area and it's really concentrated in the southeast where you get a cold spell periodically in the winter and the snakes duck into a mammal burrow for a week or two and then they pop back out. that's not not as uh, not as necessary, not as frequent, not as reliable to have to get out into these perfect conditions to survive cold spells. And so you have every individual snake has a burrow that they can go to in the winter and survive it. And then here in the in the Midwest, I think we've got a lot of diffuse denning of a few individuals, but there's a lot of areas that can satisfy uh, the requirements to get them through the winter, at least at our study site. I understand that at other parts in Ohio, there is more rock and there's a little bit more concentration of denning behavior, but I don't know that it's Still, to the extent of what you see in New York, Pennsylvania, and other parts of the East and Northeast.
1: Yeah, I was fortunate to help with a rattlesnake survey a few years ago in Pennsylvania uh, on, a, on a warm day in May, and um, it was amazing <laughs> how many uh, how many rattlesnakes were up on this talus slide. And uh, yeah, and uh, obviously using that as a, a place to hibernate also probably a place to give birth to their young and so on and so forth it's just amazing how many snakes are concentrated in this uh, big rock slide but um, in in terms of the snake like that in Pennsylvania or Indiana or Ohio winter is a a major event in their life they've got to secure they got to secure themselves so they survive so that's that's a an issue and it's uh, an issue with you know they're calorically challenged for months at a time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so it's a, it's kind of a, I don't want to say they're different snakes, but there are certainly different pressures and different, uh, things happen to a, an Ohio rattlesnake than say a, a South Carolina cane break.
0: Sure. Yeah. And I guess what I'm saying is I think the, Ohio rattlesnakes are not at the other end of that spectrum, but rather the the high elevation populations in Pennsylvania and in the Northeast are where their winters are even worse. And so they they really have a narrow, narrow sort of opportunity for survival that may be one den on a mountainside and they all have to go there. And it's a longer uh, hibernation, brumation as well. And I think Ohio certainly has a substantial winter that that they're inactive for. Although I, there's been some studies in that these snakes will pop up periodically during the winter to bask or become active, but it's I do think it's not nearly as severe as those winters. But of course, it's not nearly as mild as South Carolina and the coastal yeah. plain. Um, somewhere in between, I think that their behavior looks like somewhere in between.
1: Well, I have to think of the timbers up like in Minnesota as well. <laughs> you
0: know? Oh, right. Yeah, that's true. That's that's pretty. Harsh winters as well. It, uh, I'm sure is uh, harder to survive.
1: I always think about this in in terms, it's sort of semi geological terms too. You know, I mean, we we had a huge glaciation. Uh, glaciers. Uh, the last glacier came down, uh, stopped in Illinois um, uh, twelve thousand years ago or so. That's that's not exactly accurate, but uh, it's close enough. So mm-hmm. everything north of there is covered with ice, and then the ice retreats, and boreal forests emerge, and 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 things start moving back to the north. So, any any rattlesnake, basically north of say i sixty four in in the United States, is you know those populations have gone back north. They've traveled. They've traveled up river valleys. They've redistributed themselves across. Uh, Eastern North America since the glaciers have retreated. And I like to think about that, too, because it's a it's a long crawl. It's taken yeah. 12,000 years to get to probably right. the northern extent of their range in Minnesota and mm, northern a- New England and places like that.
2: Well, and I, I've
0: actually I've had other interests in sort of glacial retreat and patterns and, and herps lately. But I've been trying to think about, okay, if it's 10, 12,000 years ago that we're about the end of the glaciation – how many years till it actually till the habitats even habitable in these areas that they now occur in because then you've got a further restriction of how how much time they have to actually move and uh, I mean probably still thousands of years to make that trip but uh, yeah it's it's that's not a terribly long time in, in sort of evolutionary history and things moving across the landscape so it's it's pretty impressive that they have uh, I don't want to say migrated, but they've, they've moved and expanded their range as far north as they have in that time yeah. period.
1: And I don't think, I don't think they're done. I think that's, they're still, there's still this, I would call it a bounce back, but obviously things have changed now because we have uh human intervention and roads and highways and development and things like that. But, uh, obviously, uh, it didn't, it, you know, I don't think it's that sort of thing just stopped everything, uh, uh, populations of animals aren't a static thing uh, right. because we're continually undergoing some sort of uh, climate change, if you will.
0: And I would say I agree with you that they, they weren't done. I think they're done now, but I think they weren't done well, yeah, before yeah. humans came along. Yeah. Uh, and, and as you said, the roads are now such a barrier. This And this is something I take a little bit issue when I see how the media portrays rattlesnakes. There was a post, I think it was by the DNR years ago in Indiana, And it said something to the effect of rattlesnakes are on the move just south of Indianapolis near you. And I I see, you know, none of that was factually inaccurate, but it made it seem like they were invading northward towards Indianapolis. Yes. And uh, I was trying to convey to people this was when I think I was doing the um, working as a naturalist and i was trying to convey people that you know that they're not capable they they're very sensitive it's hard to keep these things where they are let alone try to establish new populations they're not invading anything they're they're shrinking that's the, that's the other trend yeah. they're not they're not moving around at all
1: it's kind of funny they have the dnr do that because it's that's usually what the local news tv stations do right the, uh, they can't scare yeah. you about the weather they're going to scare you about the hordes of migrating rattlesnakes
0: well, and this is something that's become of great interest to me as I've gotten more into outreach and and doing public events and is the language especially around snakes, you know, snakes have such a long, I would argue evolutionary history alongside people with the, our fear and developing a fear of snakes and that has really shaped how we think about them, how we talk about them and the the language we use to describe the way snakes behave, the way their populations exist, and the kind of threat they are to us, I think has a, a way of seeping in in unhelpful ways, even into professional circles. And you know, one of my big things is I don't think people should ever use the term aggressive to describe a snake interaction with a human because that, I mean, you can dissect the origin of or the exact meaning of that word, but I think in common interpretation, people interpret that as uh, you know, being that something is an aggressor. It is going out of its way to come get you. You know, if you said there's an aggressive squirrel in the park, you would think the squirrel was going to jump out of a tree on top of your head, right? And that squirrels don't do that. So we don't Thank say goodness. there's an aggressive squirrel in the park. Uh, but we say aggressive snakes because when we pick them up and they bite us, well, you go pick a squirrel up, it's going to bite you. And you wouldn't call that aggressive. You say, oh, I shouldn't have picked the squirrel up. So when snakes are defending themselves, we, we're too quick to use the word aggressive to describe the snake that more readily defends itself than another. And I think snakes just happen to have the misfortune yeah. of being very catchable. And if they didn't, you, nobody would ever, you know, very few people, a lot fewer people. Well, we're get in a small by. club
1: who would rather pick up snakes than squirrels. I'm not touching a squirrel.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I uh, I, I, I guess I don't know how, how big the club would be that would want to <laughs> pick up squirrels, but I, I do know the club that wants to stay as far away from yeah. snakes as possible is pretty big. But yeah, I. Not a not I mean, a pet squirrel might be fun to pick up, but I yeah not a wild one. <laughs> I'm gonna pick up a pass. wild
1: squirrel. I'll pass. You talk about outreach, uh, and that's something you uh, before you began your your PhD Ooh. program, you were also involved in.
0: Uh, 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 you worked as a, as a naturalist um, back in Indiana. I did. Yeah, I did. I worked for I think a year and a half, actually, two nature centers, two parks in Indiana, uh, Dobbs Park in Terre Haute and Turkey Run State Park, just north of there. So I I would say I I really did mostly animal care at Dobbs Park, and I did mostly programming at Turkey Run. And uh, that was was a really fun time for me. I, I had the good fortune to be trained and educated by a lot of really great interpreters. And I know different circles of folks in different states use different words to describe what being a naturalist or a natural history interpreter is. Uh, interpreting just as in sort of diffusing the information to the publics in a, in a digestible way. But uh, there's a great, and I think still is a great, Indiana sort of circle of naturalists. And, and I had a lot of great experience around them and learned a lot about how to reach the public. And, you know, it's, it's not the same as as what I had sort of thought it was in terms of, you get into psychology a little bit with how, how you approach people and into sort of realizing that, Maybe the facts aren't what you lead with, and maybe the facts aren't the thing you need to refine the most. Maybe connection with people is the thing you need to refine the most, and good story around yeah. things, interesting stories around things.
1: Stories. I mean, because you, 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 know, you could throw a bucket of facts at people, and they'll just bounce off.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's loads of interesting sort of psychological research that shows just how people's brains work and how we decide what what is right, what is wrong, what we like, what we don't like. And, and a lot of it is sort of what I, what I think I've heard is post hoc justification for your actions or feelings about things you, you feel your way to something and then you justify it with some logical explanation. Oh, I knew that, you know, I knew it was that way because I felt this your reality was you emotionally felt that way. And sometimes that lines up with logic and reality. And sometimes it doesn't. And with something people fear so much as snakes, that's definitely true.
1: I always like to tell the story and, um, and some of my friends have heard it probably way too often, but when it, uh, the times that I've given talks to groups and, and if there's kids involved and there's turtles involved, there's most, most people like turtles and I don't mm-hmm. trust anybody who doesn't like a turtle. But, uh, sometimes kids are a little scared. You know, you give them a big red-eared slider or a box turtle and they've never touched one mm-hmm. before and they're like, you can see their little hesitation, but I always told the kids, okay, uh. Just pick it up and hold it like a hamburger your, And I would hold the, you know, mm-hmm. I got the turtle. I'm holding it like I'm going to eat it like a hamburger. Right away, it's like, it's like you can see a switch go on in their little brains. <laughs> oh, and the fear was gone. It was like, okay. And they, like a hamburger, you know. So, uh, yeah, that, uh, that, <laughs> it was funny. I had stumbled across something that actually worked with, at least with kids, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, getting them on board and uh, obviously, uh, anybody that works in, in this, in the field of what do you call it? Nature interpretation, outreach and interpretation. You've got all these tricks in order to, uh, dis- dispel fears and, and get people to engage.
0: Yeah. I mean, really what you did is you just took something familiar and positive and associated it with this new and less familiar thing. And that made the brain of, of the kids immediately click onto, Oh, okay. I like this then. And I think the problem we have with snakes is we too often are default. And even, I think, a lot of well-meaning herp people, um, you know, a lot of the draw for some people with snakes is an adrenaline thing. I, I really think that. And I think a lot of people would admit that you know, I, I like to chase snakes. I catch snakes. I, it's exciting. It's fun. I think it's cool that they can bite. I think that's really awesome that they're you know defending themselves and they're powerful and all that. And I want to convey that. But I think often that, that is the, the very same things that attract some people to snakes are the things that repels others. So I think that anything that we can do to soften the image is right. probably going to be the thing that's more likely to bring new people into the fold, to, to bring people to snakes in a way they hadn't thought about. So I, I'm a big fan of critically evaluating the language that everybody who's really into this has been using and saying, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't, you know, maybe I think it's cool and maybe other snake people think it's cool. That these snakes bite and I can talk about how much water snakes bite, but maybe that's not helping people who don't like snakes to like snakes more uh, because they don't like that the snakes bite. Um, And I think things like conveying that these snakes don't want to bite, water snakes don't chase you, they don't, you know, they don't climb into your boat and attack you. uh, All these kind of things are, are myths. Yeah. It's hard though. You can't really confront people and say, well, no, you know, if they tell you a story, you say, well, that's not true, you know, <laughs> then you've shut them down and they're not going to listen to anything else you have to say. So it's a fine balance of, I think, humoring things that, you know, are clearly infactual and, and being gentle and friendly uh, and kind. Um, I mean, really, I think if you can, this is what I've always said with snake outreach. The key is not to get them to like the snake, it's to get them to like you, have a good experience, and then remember and associate that there was a snake there and that was good. Uh, I I think that's more important than getting the perfect facts across or trying to make uh, it, you know, I I really think that people make judgments on how much they're going to listen to you, whether they think you're in groups of people that they like to listen to. Are you the kind of person that I trust, that I listen to? And if you're not, they're gonna shut you down. And even if you have good, solid ground to stand on with facts, they're not gonna, they're not gonna do anything. So you have to break down the personal barrier first. And then I think you need to just allow them to have a safe, non-threatening, non-scary experience with that snake. So I'll do things like when I take the snake out, I stay way back from the group and I'll tell everybody, you know, I'm gonna later I'm gonna walk around close to folks with the snake. And you don't have to touch it. You don't have to get close to it. This is a perfectly safe environment where the snake's not going to be loose. You know, if you don't want the snake to come towards you, put your hand up. And I won't. So I, I try to give people a sense of control in this environment so that they 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 don't have that fear. Because I think having a sense, even if it's a false sense of control, helps people not feel like things aren't as big of a threat. And I, I really do think this is almost just um, Pavlovian, or just sort of conditioning, where you just the more experiences you have with a snake, where it's not scary, the the more you're wearing down those neural connections that associate snakes with fear and fear responses. Um, but it's it's a process for sure.
1: Yeah, and I think people are worried too. Oh, he's going to want me to hold it. Right. You know, that's part of their their calculation, right? Oh, this means we're in a group. We're talking about snakes. He's going to want me to hold this snake.
0: Mm. I don't, you know. Yeah.
1: I don't know if I want to do that. And I've heard
2: a
0: lot of, right. I've heard a lot of well meaning people kind of joke about fear of snakes or not take it real seriously, or the family will kind of try to bully them into doing it. And I don't think that's helpful generally. I think that fear of snakes is not a trivial thing for those that have it. I mean, I think a lot of us have intense fears of something or other. And if you just think of the thing that you're uncomfortable with and think of, you know, maybe snakes isn't that, but you know, you wouldn't like it if someone trivialized the thing that makes you uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. That would be, ba- that would be bears.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, of bears. I, I can understand that bears are very big and very powerful. I've, I've been most of my life, pretty scared of wasps and bees. And yeah. I've had a lot of exposure to them, which has helped me not be as, as reactive as I was when I was a kid. But, uh, you know, I had a very innate reaction to that probably from early childhood stings and experiences, but it's, a uh, it's a powerful thing. It gets entrenched there in your brain yeah. and it's, it's not a quick thing you can sort of uh, cajole someone out of. It's a, you can't it's help, a gentle, you can't help long process.
1: No. Yeah. 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 It's good to remember. Well, I, this has mm-hmm. been interesting to hear you talk about this and I'm thinking, Ooh, everybody should have this experience uh, to learn the, these interpretive skills because uh, how the heck are you, if, if you're working in a lab, you're, Entire professional career, but you can't talk to people about the animals you're trying to study, understand, and perhaps save. Uh, that that's uh, you're missing out. There's an element missing here from the from the picture, right?
0: Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. And I think I think there are a lot of instances where you have scientists and teachers who are also really good at public outreach. I've met a number of them. Um there are some great programs out there. The one I always reference because I think it's so good is the Hellbender project out of um Rod Williams lab with Purdue. They they do such a great job at sort of whole scale outreach and, and public awareness stuff. Um so it exists, a lot of it exists, but I've also seen the other end of the spectrum where you've got professors, scientists, teachers for professionals that just do not know, they don't have that skill how to talk to the public, how to reach out to the public. And a lot of it's I they people who have a high degree of knowledge about something I think sometimes really struggle to put themselves in the shoes of someone who doesn't understand it at all. They don't know where to start. They don't, they don't yeah. have trouble imagining what it would be like to not know anything and what you would need to hear to get you to there too, know. There are things. too many jumps away now. Exactly. Exactly. So, and I, I think, um, you know, it might be good if, if more scientists worked with more people who were professionals in the outreach world, but I think, you know, just increasing the amount of communication between those two can help them both excel at the jobs they're doing. And for those who can do a little bit of both, that's that's great too. But I think that um, good lines of communication between all sort of the, the ranks of people out there on the front lines of trying to conserve animals, whether you're bringing in the new information, whether you're trying to change minds and hearts in the public, or whether you're teaching, you know, in, a, in an academic institution, uh, or on the ground managing the habitat. It's all, it's all needed. It's all equally needed. And I think everything I've seen where you've had really good conservation efforts going on has involved a lot of communication between multiple sort of, um, groups that were doing different things. And I think when you have that cross communication between different kinds of professionals, you can get a lot done.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well, you're, you're incredibly well-spoken on this subject.
0: Oh well, it's it's an interest of mine. I appreciate that, but it, it's uh, it's a great interest of mine. I think I've I've always really loved talking to people who have different focuses than me, especially when they're complementary. You know, someone who's really knows the land management, knows forestry. I mean, I didn't know anything about forestry coming into this timber rattlesnake work, but understanding forestry and forest practices was so key to situating sort of the conservation issues that might face timber rattlesnakes. And right now, I came into working with Massasaugas with no understanding of grassland and agriculture and managing open habitat and working with land managers and folks that do all this and having some sense for all of that has really helped a lot.
1: Yeah, I see. And also to continue with your, obviously, you're not working as an interpretive naturalist anymore, but yet then again, you you have been sort of, uh, you have been working with um, uh, Zach Trulock, uh, on on this YouTube channel. and John Buffington and and, and I'm sorry yeah. his name and John Buffington yes yes that's the name I can I'm sorry John I forgot your name again uh, I just talked to Zach last, last fall about this about the the YouTube channel uh, Life Underfoot which you're you're involved right, with this project right.
0: yeah so the it was actually the three of us kind of got together uh, John and Zach both worked on the timber rattlesnake project yeah. some however many years back now I think 2018. And so we all tracked rattlesnakes together for summer and had a great time. And, you know, just so happened that we had, I think, different sets of complementary skills. Me with a sort of outreach focus and interest in reaching the public. Zach was doing a lot of this videography stuff, especially underwater videography. And John is an artist. And so we were able to kind of bring these skills together and and try to do something with it and, and made this YouTube channel, Life Underfoot. And uh, have been making videos on this channel since then, uh, educational videos, trying to kind of experiment with different messaging around different kinds of, especially reptiles and amphibians, but mostly smaller, overlooked animals and conservation issues. And it's been a blast. I, I hope folks have enjoyed it. It's it's done some good, useful stuff. But it's it's honestly just been a really fulfilling, creative project to work with John and Zach on, and to to make these videos. It's been a lot of fun. I'm sure you enjoy making podcasts and, and the editing even behind that is, is probably interesting and exciting to see something come together and you kind of know the the joy of putting together this product and then seeing it to fruition and seeing how people react to it
1: uh, yeah yeah um, it's it's a good thing that the <laughs> reaction is positive because as yes, you know this yeah. stuff takes a lot of work whether you're putting it together does, a, an instructional video or a podcast um, well you sure hope people like it because golly there went a whole week
0: <laughs> yeah like, i mean we life, do yeah. sometimes right we'll do videos that are five minutes long and I, I can't remember what the ratio i've tried to estimate before was but sometimes it's you know a couple hours per minute of video i mean it's the editing the filming uh we and so much more is filmed and shot than ever gets used yes. if you have a five minute video you've cut out 20 minutes of other stuff that you filmed with intention of using and you, you trim it down to about five minutes but the i've spent i don't know four or five hours, six hours editing a five minute video. And it's, it it's, feels ridiculous, but I, it feels really good to see the end product and to, to see that some people have a good reaction to it. Some of our, I would say some of the videos that, that are the most viewed on our channel, uh, there's a lot of reactions that are less positive to them just from, you know, they're about snakes yeah. and it's people's reaction to snakes And so that's been pretty demoralizing to have to wade through the comment sections on those videos. It's demoralizing to wade through
1: any comment section
0: anywhere in YouTube. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And just the scale of it, too, to realize. So we we had a, um, I'm trying to think, most of our videos really get, you know, hundreds or or a couple thousand of views. So they're smaller kind of YouTube videos, uh, I would say a more niche audience. And then we've had some that have gotten you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of views. We had a, a TikTok because we, we did TikTok for a short bit. Uh-huh. I don't know if we'll go back to that or not, but we did for a short bit. We had uh, one that I posted about amphibia, making an amphibian pond and it got half a million views and that happened in about 20 minutes or something. And that wow. was that was nuts to watch that happen, but also just to watch the stream of comments coming in and you just see a lot of positive stuff, a lot of people interested that was really exciting, but then you'd have mosquitoes nope not doing it mosquitoes what about mosquitoes you see this trend of common myths start popping up in the comment section where you got a whole segment of the population that is has this misunderstanding of how things work and say well I'm not doing that because of this or you do something on uh, black rat snakes and a whole section of the comments are about why they actually are aggressive and you you cut it you know blaming you oh you cut it this way or you did it this way to try to so it doesn't look like that or the Often it's well the snakes in my state don't adhere to your laws, so they, oh, they do this other thing and are totally different. I think well they're not totally different snakes, I guarantee you. Uh, so it just the kind of arguments that are easy to get into if you if you spend too much time in the comments section, you can't take it we'll personally. break you down, you know. I have trouble with that. Yeah, yeah I'm not good at that, <laughs> especially
1: when you put a lot of work into it. Yeah, it's hard to yeah
0: hard yeah. to have people.
1: It's not so hard for somebody to say, uh, you know, this really just wasn't my thing. That's that's fine. You can take that, that. Uh, but when they say, you know, they basically say you're a liar or you're completely wrong or whatever. You know, my daddy used to work on those or whatever it is they say. Um, That's that can be demoralizing, and so you have to be prepared.
0: Yeah, and it's it was. I think the there's one thing to get it from where you expect it to hear people that are clearly not. Educated in herpetology or, or biology that much, and, and they've got a lot of misconceptions about things, and those have been carried through. And they're, they're argue, they want to argue with you, but you, you're not you're not on even ground in terms of interest and passion and situated within that field. But I've had you know I've I've had it from the other side too, where you get uh, passionate herp people uh, that have particular, especially with when I got into the snakes aren't aggressive thing. I had a lot of people who wanted to fight me on that and say yeah. water snakes are aggressive. You can't tell me they're not aggressive. And a lot of that, I think, came from this place of, this is something I actually value about this, is how cool and dangerous it feels. Don't try to take that away from me. Don't try to make them seem less dangerous, because I I won't hear that, because that's something I like about it. And so, yeah, I I, I think when you get it from both sides, it can be particularly frustrating.
1: Yeah, I never thought about that. There's, you know, people that... um... The the perceived notion that snakes are aggressive is, is something that's important to their self-identity. That's yeah. That's pretty deep, man.
0: Yeah, I think whether they'd admit it or not, that's that was my interpretation <laughs> of why they were so fervently arguing with me on that point. But um,
1: you've done this yeah. and I, I've done this too, uh, you know, where you go and you gently put your hands under a northern water snake and pick it up out of the creek and take its picture and put it back and it never bites you. Uh, and people yeah. go, how did that happen? That must be a dumb right. one or that must be
0: right. Something's you know, wrong with it. Any, anytime
1: you grab a, a snake, it, the snake thinks it's being predated and, uh, mm. this, all the snake can do is figure something is trying to eat me. So no wonder they try yeah. to bite. And, um, uh, you, you know, it's kind of hard to, uh, <laughs> it's, it's hard to get people to understand that. There, there are different approaches to this that you get an entirely different outcome, you know, yeah. if the snake doesn't feel threatened.
0: Yeah. And actually I, I have, I mean, you, you, you were with me in my younger days to see me do dumb things and take stupid <laughs> risks and have be fueled by adrenaline. And I, my whole approach to everything has changed quite a bit. I, I generally avoid handling snakes if I don't need to, or if there's not a good reason to anymore. Sure. When I do, I, I do it very gently and I'm a big proponent of the way you handle snakes is is very influential on in how they react. And as you said, you can pick them up often gently from below and not have any reaction. You can I mean, and what other wild animals can you sometimes pick up calmly enough that they don't just bite and tear you up? I mean there's not not many other groups of wild animals that tolerate gentle handling. Not a squirrel and won't react to it. Not a squirrel, <laughs> not a squirrel at all. But snakes will. Yeah. And so I uh you know, I, I look back at older videos that I, because I was shooting videos periodically, even when I was in my master's and before, doing my master's and before, and I'll, you know, grab a snake by its tail and hold it up, you know, do the whole Steve Irwin thing. And I just, it's cringy to watch that. But uh, a video I'm I've sort of half completed and working on that I really want to get out is one on handling snakes and trying to sort of convey this gentler way to do it yeah. and how effective it can be at keeping snakes calm. So it's one I've been working on that really is, kind of geared towards the, the herping crowd. To, um, and, and it may be that the next generation is already coming up a lot gentler, but if I can contribute to that at all, that'd be, I mean,
1: yeah, that, that'd be great. Uh, obviously those things take a little while to shoot cause you've got to, uh, you've got to get your little clips of the, the calm thing happening. Yeah. So it, it's right, a of work right. to set those up.
0: Yeah, I've got most of it shot. Uh, I, I probably need to shoot a couple additional things, but it's it's honestly the editing that, that takes forever. And I'm, it's, it's, of course, not my job or my main focus right now, and especially with a, an impending move and job change, that uh, it's going to keep me even busier. I don't know how much of it I'll be able to do in the future, but uh, I, I'd like to get a few more things out, at least before my life completely changes.
1: Let's talk about that. Uh, you're actually moving sure. on to uh, a, a new place and a new position.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be starting as an assistant professor in, at St. John Fisher University just outside of Rochester, New York in August.
1: Okay. Congratulations.
0: Thanks. I'm excited to, to get this position. I think it's, I've gotten to you know, chat with a lot of people in the department and, and get a good feel for the university. And I really love the teaching focus is very much a teaching job, you know, four, four load. It's, it's going to be a Undergrad-focused teaching position, but I do plan to do you know, a fair amount of undergrad research. Research with undergrads while I'm there as well. Okay. So I'm I'm excited. New beginnings. Awesome,
1: and uh, you'll get a chance to uh, put your interpretive skills to work, perhaps.
0: Yeah, I you know when we did a lot of training with interpretive stuff, there was often this discussion of interpretation versus education and sort of the difference between the two. But I think that especially on the education side, there's a lot of interpretive techniques that need to come into the classroom more. And uh, just in terms of the onus being on you to get and hold the attention of your audience to entertain them, not just to throw facts at them and, and get them to repeat stuff. So I I think that, you know, good teachers, whether they want to admit it or not, are also good entertainers. And I think that's, that's an important part of it.
1: Sure. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. And, um, covering a number of subjects it's uh great to talk to you and uh, even if we weren't recording i would have appreciated the chat time we've had together yeah it's been great catching up
0: thank you yeah
1: and uh, i will um in the show notes i of course put a link to the life underfoot uh channel which uh, i really enjoy by the way those are those are well done and uh congrats to you and zach and uh uh, john for the work you've Mm -hmm. done on those so Keep up the good work. Uh, I'm an old guy, but Thank I can appreciate you. some YouTube stuff. So,
0: well, you're—I mean, uh, you're doing a podcast. You're very—you're very tech savvy. So, I think <laughs> YouTube is by no means, uh, you know, a, a y- too young for you or anything like that.
1: <laughs> I don't know about the tech savvy part. I—I uh, I, it's a struggle sometimes, but I have learned some new things. That's for sure. I've learned some sure. new software skills and some new life skills in order to 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 do this. So, yeah, but, uh, that's, you know, that's what we got to do to, you know, we want to, we want to keep moving forward regardless of who we are or how old we are or what our situation is. So,
0: yeah, good. Yeah. Good.
1: Well, thank you again, sir. And good luck in your new position.
0: Thank you very much. Take care. Hey
1: there, it's me again. Thanks so much, Andrew, for chatting with me. I really enjoyed all of our conversation. and I mean, who doesn't like rattlesnakes? But I especially liked the education and outreach topic. You really gave me some things to think about. And uh, folks, do yourself a favor and check out the Life Underfoot channel on YouTube. And underfoot is all one word. Andrew, Zach Trulock, and John Buffington have put together 66 video segments to date, and they're pretty awesome. And while I'm busy urging people to do things, check out Park sometime at parkplace.org. And Park, of course, is P-A-R-C. And uh, you can see what the org is doing and maybe find a local or regional chapter to see what kind of herp conservation is happening in your area of North America. And uh, you can even attend our meetings. And always, folks, thanks for listening. That's it for episode 8082. I want to thank Dr. Andrew Hoffman for coming on the show and covering so many cool topics. It was good to talk with you again, Andrew, and I wish you all the best in your new position. Thanks again to Skylar Hopkins as well for supporting the show. And I want to say thanks as usual to all the So Much Pingle patrons who keep the show rolling on t- into the future. And if you'd like to kick in a few bucks to help support the show, it's pretty easy to do, and it costs about as much as a cup of delicious coffee. Just go to patreon.com slash somuchpingle, and so pingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to muchpingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at somuchpingle.com. And you can join the So Much Pinkle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. I say it every time, but I do like hearing from folks. I like to hear your thoughts and opinions and your guest suggestions and whatever it is you got. So you can email me at so muchpingle at gmail.com. And so muchpingle, as always, is one word. Also, please note that I am on Instagram and Mastodon now under the So Much Pingle handle. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.